I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. This past Sunday was Father's Day, so I interviewed my dad, Colonel Kent Harbaugh. I grew up, like most sons, thinking my father was invincible. Even his stories about taking enemy fire as a phantom pilot over Vietnam made him seem larger than life. That was before I knew what it meant to go to war. Every son, every child, one day realizes that their parents, their fathers, are mortal. All the more reason that we keep their stories alive. Here are a few of them from a phantom pilot, wing commander, and best father a son could hope for. Uh, I'm Kent Harbaugh, the senior. Uh, pilot of T-38s initially as an instructor pilot, and then RF-4C reconnaissance airplanes. I'll start in fifth grade when uh, we were assigned a weekly reader to uh, examine as elementary students. And this particular issue had an article on the founding of the Air Force Academy. Well, that sort of impressed me, but what really impressed me was the picture of the pilot with his helmet standing in front of a thunderstorm with lightning shooting out of it. And I decided, wow, that looks neat. I'm going to do that, which, in fact, is what I ended up doing. Well, I graduated in... 1963, uh, with a path to an early master's degree at Georgetown University, contingent on going to pilot training upon receiving the master's. As I left the academy, probably the best feeling I had was seeing the academy in the rearview mirror of my car as I headed off to Washington to grad school and then to Williams Air Force Base for pilot training. While I was at pilot training, in fact, uh, my goal was to fly C-130s so I could fly around the world in my own airplane and join uh, lots of other people in hundreds of different places. But then uh, as I neared completion of training in the T-38, one of the instructors talked me into coming back as an instructor pilot saying that would be a lot more fun and get a lot more flying. So that, in fact, is what I did for the next four years. After I'd been a pilot, an instructor pilot for a year or two, the war was picking up and they needed more and more pilots, so it became more likely that I would go. And at that point, all of us wanted to go. All of us wanted to be fighter pilots and wanted to go to Vietnam. Once I realized that I was probably going to go to Vietnam, I went along with everybody else who happened to be fighter pilots coming back as senior instructors and said, well, I ought to fly an F-4 and drop bombs and shoot guns. But then uh, as the process progressed, I filled out my volunteer form to go to Vietnam, realizing that that was part of the final 
decision. And when the orders came back, much to my surprise, it was for a reconnaissance airplane, the RF-4, rather than the fighter that I thought I'd volunteered for. So I went to the personnel people and said, hey, you got this wrong. I want to be a fighter pilot. And they turned around and said, no, you got it wrong. On your volunteer form, you put down recce rather than fighter. And so uh, off I went to RF-4 combat training. Uh, the RF-4 was an interesting airplane in that it was half fighter, the F-4, but also partially an F-111. The radar had been changed and essentially had the same radar in it as the F-111, so it could follow the terrain and it could uh, work around mountains, although it was not automatic. The pilot had to do all of the maneuvering. Uh, as a sensor carrier, uh, amazingly versatile for that era of technology. It had optical cameras. It had uh, infrared sensors. And it had uh, electronic uh, listening, if you will, very elementary. But nonetheless, it covered pretty much the spectrum of what we were looking for or looking at. Uh, the war was going along full speed, and uh, pilots and navigators were being called into the tactical forces uh, from all of the commands. So in the case of the reconnaissance uh, RF-4s, since we did a lot of our work at night, most of the navigators came from the Strategic Air Command and were bombardiers or senior navigators who would sit behind us and uh, not only help navigate but ran all of the sensors for us. So highly experienced, very senior people, some uh, senior majors and lieutenant colonels flying in the back performing these uh, tasks for us. It depended on their experience and their maturity. I had some old grizzly sack bombardiers that I would follow anywhere and follow their instructions to get there. Then I had younger navigators that didn't have as much experience, and I would note that they were in the rear cockpit, but I would depend more on my own sense, my own logic, and my own guidance, actually, training them to be more experienced in the RF-4. Occasionally, we'd have uh, a quick reaction mission, not setting alert, but if an Army unit got into trouble and called for reconnaissance, we would send the first crew available out to the first airplane available and, in fact, plan the mission on the wing of the airplane and get into it. Uh, the other extreme were the night missions where uh, we would spend probably four or five hours going through the radar navigation, the uh, steps to get from one target to the other, analyzing the threat, and then finally putting together our flight plan and going fly it. And in those cases, some of those missions would last six or seven hours with multiple refuelings. As we studied the threats, there were, well, the first thing I realized, we would go into Intel and they had the maps where the threats were plotted out. Red circles for uh, those that had fire very recently and then yellow for older ones. And as I looked at our targets and our flight path, I realized all we were doing is flying from one red circle to the other, which 
is where they had the questions about what's in there and who's shooting. So we knew we're going into it. Then it was a matter of applying a little bit of logic. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, the first time I knew I was fired at, uh, we were at uh, 4,500 feet trying to follow trails in uh, southern Vietnam and Cambodia. And I watched, uh, looked out the side of the canopy and saw these birds flying up at me. And then I continued the circle, and halfway around, not only were there birds flying up at me, but they were flying faster than I was. And I realized that, my gosh, somebody's actually shooting at me. But fortunately, we followed the rules. We were high enough that uh, the ammunition, the slugs were just fluttering through the air by the time they got to us. Uh, another example on a night mission, uh, we were using the infrared sensor and trying to determine when the North Vietnamese forces were coming into the south for the fighting season uh, along the Laotian border. And there was a long valley that had the road down the middle that they would use to come in. Typically, to do the reconnaissance run, you go right down the middle of the valley and cover the road. But we decided or I decided, to take two runs at it, one on the left side, then one on the right side. And as we dropped into the valley, we had three strobes of radar that hit our airplane. We knew it was out there. So uh, we pushed up the throttles to full military power and were gradually accelerating as we're doing our run. Oh, halfway down the valley, we started seeing these flash bulbs go off behind us. One, two, three, and then the fifth one was right up beside the airplane. And what they were were uh, 37 millimeter shells exploding, and what they had done was determined by dead reckoning when we ought to be at what place over the middle of that road and let us have it. Well, we only did one run that night and then came home. <laughs> I was surprised that when I went, to, well, as an instructor pilot, I was young and brash and full of confidence and then went to combat. I knew I was immortal. I was just going to be invincible to go on forever until the second or third event of people shooting at me. And I, I didn't get angry. I just became more realistic. Say, hey, this may not last forever and have to be ready for that. Basically, just focused on getting the job done from day to day. For example, we were there when uh, the initial U.S. incursions went into Cambodia, and we were doing it before the forces were on the ground. So we didn't question the politics of that. We had orders to shut off our IFF, no radio communications, and where to come back. And that was the rule of the day, so we all did just the best we could. As a crew member, that our job was to be available 24 hours for whatever came down in the, the frag order. So uh, in some cases, uh, I would spend three or four months flying nothing but nights. So sleep all day, eat dinner, and then go in to plan and go fly. But uh, no thought of the politics or that aspect of it. As we got more experience, we would spend more time in the targeting process, uh, 
and in the scheduling. So uh, by the time I've been there six or eight months and had a good feel for the flying, I was in the targeting business, which would take the directions from the higher headquarters, translate them into packages of doable reconnaissance missions, and then give them to the, or brief them to the pilots. Later, as I, just before I came home, I was a wing plans officer, flying uh, functional check rides rather than combat sorties, and working from the office during the day. As we developed the target packages and handed them out, there was really no questioning of why I went here or why I went there. And the major reason for that is most of it was over the jungle, and we couldn't see what was down there anyway. Although there was an interesting situation in uh, Cambodia where uh, we took pictures of a place called Angkor Wat, which was a very uh, important Buddhist temple of great historical uh, significance. And looking at the photos after we came back, the interpreters saw long white shapes inside the walls of Angkor Wat. And the intelligence people immediately said, those must be missiles. They're bringing uh, anti-aircraft missiles into Cambodia. So uh, we went back lower altitude faster and confirmed photo-wise that they, in fact, were teak logs that they're using to rebuild the temple. That resulted in a tasking from headquarters for Recky to go out and photographically identify every temple in Cambodia, no matter how old it was or whether it was in ruins or not. And we spent hours and hours slogging through the jungle trying to identify these places. But in doing that, uh, we preserved them rather than having them bombed or destroyed. If we'd uh, concluded that the the logs were really SA-2 missiles, it would have been a major uh, escalation in the war since none of those were in Cambodia up to that point. And the natural response would be to destroy them before they destroyed us. So in all likelihood, Angkor Wat would have been bombed and lost. The recce pilots were the fighter pilots with brains. And the rest of the fighter pilots went out in four-ship formations in order to collect enough of a brain to do the job. Uh, Recce always, well, we always went out alone. Sometimes there were two ships, but uh, completely on our own, which I found extremely rewarding because we had not only the responsibility to complete authority to do whatever was necessary to, to accomplish the mission. Our motto was alone, unafraid, and scared shitless. So particularly at night, it was a challenge to be out there by yourself where you could see the artillery firing into the woods that you were going to take the imagery of. Uh, But the camaraderie was one of competition. And I think uh, fighter pilots recognizing that it took somebody a little bit different to go out unarmed and uh, do what the same thing they, they were doing. We were the bait, and they were the hammer. 
The RF4 was not at all suited for what we were using it for. It's certainly not designed to do it. It was designed to be an air-to-air interceptor flown off aircraft carriers. So uh, not much consideration for air conditioning, for example, where uh, the Navy pilots were up at 30 or 40,000 feet and cool as could be. We were down at 200 feet sweating our butts off. But uh, adding... The change with the the uh, sensors changed the configuration of the front of the airplane so that, in fact, uh, we were faster than the fighters. And uh, that added a little bit to the animosity of who was going first. But uh, nonetheless, it was extremely reliable with two engines and two people and able to come back. The RF-4, the F-4, was known as being a pretty heavy, tough airplane. Had two huge engines in it, and it could fly a brick at Mach 1 if it had to. We were uh, over the middle of uh, Cambodia when there was a compound that was being overrun by the North Vietnamese. And so uh, we took a photo run as low as we could go, and as fast as we could go, which was just subsonic over the the village and its uh, Buddhist temple. Well, first time was fine. <clears throat> we were low on fuel, so we refueled from a KC-135 and then went back for the final run. Again, being invincible, I wasn't concerned about making two passes at very low altitude. But as I did... I flew into a, a hail of lead, and I'm sure nobody knew that they hit our airplane, but they did. They uh, essentially severed three of the four hydraulic lines that kept us in the air, started a fire inside the airplane, and so we climbed as hard as we could, and about that time, all those nice, comfortable green lights went out, and all the yellow and red ones came on, which is not what you want to see. But then all of the lights went out and we lost all electricity. Well, it happened that there was a fighter that had refueled just before us and we were able to get off radio calls uh, to him and he came down, found us with his radar and led us back to uh, Saigon, to Tonsonut. Got out of the airplane and he came over to ops or that crew came over to ops and as it turned out, the front seater was one of the first graduates that I had graduated from pilot training. Backseater was in the last class. <laughs> we could see uh, the runway at the capital of uh, Cambodia, Nankam Phanon, and Phnom Penh, but decided that we'd try to get back to Saigon. And uh, if we had had to eject. We had 200 miles of walking through very unfriendly territory, so we knew that really was not an option. And once the fighter caught up with us, uh, we were fairly confident that we could keep the airplane in the air. It had stayed airborne. As it turned out, when we looked at the battle damage, a part of it uh, had blown panels off the bottom of the airplane, and in route back, we had to fly through a monsoon uh, 
storm, a downpour. So we believe that the rain came through the open belly of the airplane, put out the fire, and it kept on going. As our experience progressed, uh, we became more and more concerned about the aircraft that were being shot down and the pilots that were not being rescued. But the general response was to pack one more handgun and make sure that you didn't become a prisoner. Resist as long as you're able to resist, and then if they got you, they got you. Unfortunately, I had too many of the graduates of uh, pilot training that uh, I had helped train end up as uh, POWs, plus uh, some during the time that I was over there who were uh, contemporaries of my own. And it was uh, difficult to adjust to the fact that they were there in the Hanoi Hilton and I was still able to come back to the BOQ and the officers club. It was particularly difficult to uh, recognize and admit the hardships they were going through, whereas uh, we had very good living circumstances as we continued to fly. But we knew at any time we could be the next one to go down. There was an interesting relationship between uh, the Army and the Air Force in South Vietnam in particular, which is where I flew, where our primary mission was supporting those grunts out in the field. And uh, at the isolated fire support bases, for example, they would uh, shoot up flares when we go by to <laughs> let us know. Hey, we're down here. Keep it up. Uh, and occasionally, well, we had photo flash cartridges in the back of our airplanes to do night photography. And occasionally, we'd roll up on the side and fire a couple back at them. And so it was definitely uh, mutual respect and, in our case, admiration for the crud that those guys were going through. The best uh, chow was at the Army Headquarters Dining Hall in Saigon itself. So occasionally we get up our courage, get a pickup truck, and head in for dinner. But we always had two or three guys in the back of the pickup to throw out the hand grenades that may have been tossed at us as we were going in. So uh, it was always... Uh, a risky business, but one that was always good for a great steak. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. 
On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'd have to conclude that uh, our military strategy wasn't any better suited for Vietnam than the RF-4 was. That uh, We did not have an understanding of the Vietnamese culture to start with, much less any understanding of the communist North Vietnam. So much of our effort, in fact, alienated both sides rather than accommodate them. And the tragedy I see in that is this isn't the last war that we had that problem, that failure to understand before we went in or when to get out. I stuck with the Air Force primarily, I think, because of the values instilled at the academy. That uh, my first assignment back was, a matter of fact, a political science instructor at the Air Force Academy. And it was at the height of the protests uh, from the Vietnam uh, War resistors, if you will. Uh, we couldn't wear our uniforms downtown. They were trying to plow up the entrance to the Air Force Academy to plant wheat. They'd stand up in uh, chapel and shout that uh, we were killers and pigs. And I had to rationalize all that with the fact that people had been shooting at me uh, just so these protesters would have the freedom to protest. And so I saw the need to continue to serve the country through a period of great uh, distraught and the way to do that was uh, partially through education as an instructor at the academy and partially by being an officer who could uh, explain the dilemma to the troops in the Air Force. Well, as at, a, at the academy, I had a particular dilemma. I was on the track to go back and get a Ph.D. and return as a full-time instructor. But as I looked at what was happening in the Air Force, I decided that I wanted to return to the field to be with the troops rather than in the ivory tower with the uh, scholars. As a result, I, I did that and uh, was able to try to relay some of the lessons that I had learned and seen in Vietnam to the younger troops coming through 
the Air Force. My first flying job was uh, as a frontline recce pilot at Bertram Air Force Base in Austin, Texas, where I had to come back to reality of the Air Force. Up to that point, my experience in Vietnam was you did whatever you had to to get the mission done. Well, in the peacetime Air Force, the mission wasn't as important as the numbers, getting the flying hours, being safe, no incidents, no accidents. And on more than one occasion, I had to come up to the wing commander and explain why I had done something that seemed totally logical to me, but wasn't uh, bureaucratically approved in a peacetime Air Force. After uh, a tour at Bergstrom, we ended up in Germany at uh, Zweibrücken Air Force Base, uh, right on the front lines, essentially, of the Cold War. Our mission was to essentially pull, patrol the border between East and West Germany, Czechoslovakia, and try to watch what the Soviets were doing on the other side. It was a period where military spending had been reduced, so we had fewer and fewer spare parts. The young men and women who were in the Air Force were not getting all of the benefits and privileges that they should have. But much to our amazement, my amazement, they all hung together and tried to get the job done. Uh, For example, we would have uh, alert practices that would last two or three days, and they would be in chemical gear most of that time, getting smelly, sweaty, and almost like army troops. But they did it. We had one exercise where uh, we decided that we would go ahead and simulate evacuating the base as though the Russians were coming. And so they all got on their little tugs, their uh, pickup trucks, whatever they could, and we paraded down the main street of the base and headed toward the gate. And they were cheering at the... uh, I guess, realization that they were important enough to be evacuated. After the uh, flying tours, I ended up being a defense attaché in London. And this was a period of time where NATO had decided in a dual-track decision to negotiate with the Soviets to disarm, but at the same time install cruise missiles to balance the Soviet threat. So I ended up on a cruise missile base with the task of making sure that the missiles were ready, but at the same time, uh, not upsetting all of the local communities around the base. So the big challenge was really one of um, community relations and getting the, the surrounding villages on our side, which we did. But inside the wire, the challenge was taking people who had never been near a cruise missile, training them and getting the operational uh, in the amount of time we had. Interestingly, most of them who had missile experience were from the Strategic Air Command and then they'd been at the same base for 15 years in a silo with Minutemen. And here we expected them to go out 
into the boondocks with these transportable cruise missiles. Well, one of the funny stories, interesting stories, was uh, our chief chef at our dining hall was a, a great guy, a master sergeant, and I told him that I thought that the food was very important, but it was more important for the troops who were deployed out supporting the missiles than it was for the officers who were back on the base uh, eating in the chow hall. So he went to the Army, found uh, trailers and ways to get food out on that dispersal sites. And one of his first uh, adventures was to an Army base where we had uh, launchers uh, hidden in trees. And we could see down in the valley uh, the mock village that the Army had built in order to practice assaults. It was right on Little Stream with a bridge. And here comes our NCO with his Humvee and his trailer of food behind him through the valley. Just when he hit the bridge, the Army began their exercise, setting off explosives, blowing up buildings, uh, plumes of smoke, everything else. And he barely got up the hill to us, got out of his Humvee, and he was a black guy who was just as white as a sheet by the time he reached us. But uh, as a result of that, when he got back to the base, we uh, made a paper Purple Heart and rewarded him for his combat experience as a cook and gave him the Purple Heart. The concept behind the cruise missile was to have a portable threat that could move more frequently than the Soviets could target with their ballistic missiles. So uh, the designers came up with a truck-mounted launcher that would carry four missiles, could go out into the field with a launch control center and move about every day, every other day, uh, guarded by a ground uh, security force. So the intent was to move faster than the Soviets could uh, target you. The challenge was keeping the whole thing secure and tied together. One of the higher level challenges in NATO is the fact that if you were going to launch a nuclear weapon from one country and into the territory of another, you had to have the concurrence not just of the U.S., but of that other government. So uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan would both have to agree before we could launch our particular missiles. And with the relationship between the two of them at the time I was there, there was no doubt that there would be agreement. Plus, they looked at this as defense of the UK, which in fact it was, not so much as defense of the United States. So they might even be more motivated to prevent the Russians from coming in. My mission was to provide deterrence, which meant keeping my people and these missiles safe and able to launch at any time. So the whole focus was on being prepared with the hope and expectation that if we we're really prepared, we'd never have to be used. Yeah, the 
challenge was uh, twofold. One, building up the base and the capability with people who had never been around a cruise missile. But at the same time, always knowing that President Reagan and Gorbachev were negotiating to do away with us. And uh, one of the highlights uh, was the fact that we were able to build the base uh, fast enough that the first flight of missiles became operational before the treaty was signed. And that did two things. One that really warmed my heart. Uh, the F-111s who were stationed at a nearby base were taken off their nuclear alert because the cruise missiles came on. And that was probably uh, 20 crew members who didn't have to go all the way across East Germany into Russia. Uh, the other was the fact of keeping the people motivated once the treaty was signed. We made our goal of being operational, ready to go, but now we have to unplug the whole thing. And the way we approached that was during all of our buildup, we had two themes. One, we wanted Gorbachev to hear every morning because R.F. Moses is there. Today is not the day one day at a time. But then the other was our ultimate goal is to force him into getting rid of his SS-20 missiles. And the trade-off was our missiles. And that both made the world safer while we still had the deterrence if the negotiations failed. As a commander and a military professional, I always look to the civilian leadership and follow it. So I always knew that what I was building could be disassembled and sent home. When that happened, in fact, I was quite happy because now fewer missiles, fewer nuclear warheads across the world. Most of our people saw it the same way, that we had succeeded in doing what we wanted to do. Now, let me diverge just for a moment and uh, mention one of the characters at R.F. Molesworth, a lady named Peggy. Peggy was a devout Quaker pacifist, but also a trained nurse. She stood outside our main gate come rain, wind, snow, whatever it was, holding up posters as we came in each morning to go on duty. And they were posters like, again, grow wheat rather than missiles. Uh, not antagonistic or anti-American so much, but just, I don't like what you're doing here. And I sort of had to agree with her. One morning I went into work and I stopped at the front gate uh, rolled down the window and called Peggy over to the car, and she was sort of hesitant to come, not knowing what I was going to do to her. Well, I told her, Peggy, you need to change that sign. And she said, what? A bit taken back. And I said, no Americans know what candle mass is. Oh, you don't? I said, I don't have the foggiest idea what it means. Go make another sign. So she said, oh, okay. She went back to her little caravan. Next morning when I rolled into the base, there she was out in the rain. And her sign said this time, we like Americans, but not your missiles. <laughs> and 
I gave her a thumbs up. She gave me a smile, and we had it made. When we were initially organized, we were the 55th Umpty-Ump Tactical Missile Wing, which had no ring to it at all. But looking at RF Molesworth, it had been the home for a B-17 bomb group during World War II, and they happened to be the 303rd. So uh, fortunately, the Air Force commander was also a history buff. And I said, well, let's try to tie the missile wing to the 303rd bomb group because they have a tradition here in this part of England. And he says, okay, I went back and we fought the change. And it turned out to be a masterstroke because, for example, the farmer who owned the land around RAF Molesworth had been a small boy in the same house during World War II. He watched the B-17s take off to bomb Germany. As the Americans were leaving, they gave him a ride in a B-17. And that made him love Americans for the rest of his life. He became a key part of the community relations effort to keep protesters away and to integrate the new American visitors into the local English villages. As I retired and uh, reflected back on it, I was often asked if I missed flying. And the answer was no, I'm just grateful I survived. Some people ask me if uh, I missed the prestige of being the defense attache to the court of St. James in London. And the answer to that is I prefer Texas barbecue to the cocktail circuit. So no, I don't miss that. But I tell you what I do miss are the NCOs. They are the heart of the Air Force. They're the ones who taught me how to be a servant leader rather than just a leader leader. How to listen and be compassionate. How to take care of your people. And this is probably the best lesson that I have out of my entire Air Force career. If you take care of your people, they'll take care of you. This is true today as it was 50 years ago. It's as true in the civilian world as it is in the military. That was Colonel Kent Harbaugh. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Senior producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Dave Douglas. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.